Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In this week's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer is in the series, A Life That Pleases God. As we work our way through Hebrews 11, we see examples of those who demonstrated what faith is. First, let's define it. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through history and even our time today, we see many people claim to have a faith in Jesus, but end up losing sight of him. William Borden set his faith on Christ so much, he was willing to sacrifice the American dream. He wrote three things in his Bible, no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. How are you living the life of faith? If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message, Faith Trades This Life for the Next. Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We're continuing our series studying what faith is. Remember, it's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's something that we believe. It's a reality. I can't see it. I can't touch it. I can't necessarily feel it, but I know that it's there. I know God is there. I know there's a kingdom that's awaiting me, and I'm living for that day. When we change how we live, we modify our life today because of a kingdom that we can't see and a God that we cannot touch, we know we're living by faith. And so the Bible in Hebrews chapters 11 does not simply define faith. He gives us examples to follow. He shows us what faith looks like. He separates each of these examples with the words by faith. So God says, by faith, you have a human who chose to live by faith, to live according to something that is very real to him, very tangible, and and yet not visible. And then God wants us to look at these examples of faith and then ask ourselves, do I live a life of faith? Or is my Christianity just a prayer that I prayed out of a survival instinct to get out of hell, and then I come to church out of guilt, but I'm not actually making faith decisions day by day when I leave the church? And so God calls us to look at these examples and to live by faith. Last week, we looked at Moses' parents who lived by faith. They did not fear the king's edict. Today, we're going to look at Moses himself. And we're going to look a little bit about that transition from youth and to adulthood and how God used him to live a life of faith. So let's briefly catch us up here. How did we get from Moses as a baby to Moses as an adult? Exodus chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, talking about Moses' mother says, when she could no longer hide him, uh, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She made it waterproof. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, this may seem like a a strange solution to some of us. Why is mom, if mom was so full of faith, why'd she put the baby in the basket to begin with? Uh, I don't believe that we can assign to her fear or a lack of faith. God just praised her last week for a lack of fear and an abundance of faith. And so what it came down to is her baby's getting a little older. Uh, How easy is it to hide a baby? Anybody hiding a baby here in the congregation today? Uh, Probably not. We don't hear them. Uh, By the way, if you have a baby and you're in our congregation, don't stress. If you want to or need to have your baby here as a church, we're glad that you bring the young ones here. Don't don't just stay home and live stream because you're afraid to bring baby into church. Uh, We're here as a family, and sometimes families get a little noisy. Uh, Well, that was Moses when he was a baby. Moses was a typical baby. He wasn't superhuman. He cried. And so mama put him in a basket because she knew that if the crying continued and the noises continued, neighbors will talk, news will get out, and somebody's going to kill this baby for sure. 
And so what you see here is an act of desperation and just trusting God. God, I can't leave this boy in my house any longer, but I'm also not gonna just let the king kill him. So I'm gonna put him in this waterproof basket. I'm gonna have my daughter float it near some Egyptians, some random Egyptians, and just hope that they hear this crying and they have mercy on this baby. I'm entrusting this baby to the Lord. His future's in God's hand. That's what all of us as parents have to do with our kids too, don't we? Come graduation, we put them in that, that uh, ark of bulrushes. We send them off and we trust them to God. Well, that's what she's doing here. Uh, the interesting thing is this baby didn't just end up in some random Egyptian's house, did he? Who, fo- who found him? Pharaoh's own daughter. Isn't that amazing? Does that just not impress you about the sovereignty of God? The very family that wants this boy dead God protects the one who's going to be the deliverer of Israel and puts him, not only protects him, but puts him in the very home of the people that want him dead. God is just amazing. God can, our God can do things like that. So she ends up, it says, Exodus 2 verse 5 says, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river and while her young women walked beside her, uh, or beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it and she opened it and saw the child. Behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him, saying, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So the Pharaoh's daughter was not deceived into thinking this is some random kid. She knew it was a Hebrew kid, and she knew why some Hebrew mother would send this baby down the river. But instead of wanting to follow her father's commands, she decided to have pity on this baby and brought her into the house. Acts 7 in Stephen's speech gives us a little bit more direction as to what took place at this point. Acts 7 verse 21 says, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. So Moses wasn't just brought in, well, let's bring him into the house, you know, let's take him in, let's feed this kid, but, you know, we'll let him work with the servants or, you know, live in the corner. No, this says that she adopted him. This child became, if you will, a prince of Egypt. He's going to get the full royal treatment at this point. She adopted him. It says she brought him up as her own son. This boy was well-loved. He was given everything that you could possibly want for your child. It says Moses was instructed in all the ways, or all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Moses, in his young adult years, only ever knew luxury and comfort and security and love. He was treated with kindness by this Egyptian uh, Pharaoh's daughter. Moses is living the good life. He's got title and land and position and wealth and everything that a mother could ever possibly want for, except faith, except an understanding of who the one true God is. And so God is gonna take care of that too. I think it's interesting that all Moses' developmental years as a boy and a young man, all the way up to age 40, God kind of glosses over. Where do I get this number 40 from? Well, it's also from Stephen's speech. If you read a little bit about Moses, Acts 7.23 says, when Moses was 40 years old, he came, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So at age 40, Moses' heart began to kind of turn. Previously, Moses was given a, an Egyptian name. In fact, Moses' name, which the Bible lets us know, means taken from. In Egyptian, it means taken from and son of. Maybe you've, in history class, members studying some of these Pharisees, not Pharisees, <laughs> that's a different story. Uh, these Pharaohs, 
and I mean, Thutmose III or Ramesses II and things like that. Uh, Mos at the end of a Egyptian's name means taken from. It was Moses' name. And but usually they would attach their name to an Egyptian god of some kind. And so Moses, like Daniel in Babylon, is given a, an Egyptian name, an Egyptian title. He's attached to one of their gods. He's brought up in Egyptian religion. He's brought up with Egyptian culture. And he's, and he's enjoying, just basking in all this Egyptian wealth. He has absolutely everything a mama would pray for for her kid to have when they grow up. And yet God is unconcerned about those things. Age zero to 40, we know very, very little about Moses' life. You see, God isn't too concerned that Moses was wildly successful, that he was comfortable, that he had uh, title and land and, and prestige. God, these things don't matter much to God. We pray about these things for our kids because we desperately want our kids to be wealthy and respected and comfortable and happy. And these tend to be the things that we raise our children for. Interesting, though, that these first 40 years, God completely glosses over. God has very little interest in our prosperity on a human earth. We're praying for that. God glosses over. God's like, let me get to the good parts, the part where Moses begins to live by faith. And so advanced to age 40, Moses... Uh, you know, we understand that he kills an Egyptian, he flees into the wilderness, and uh, he goes into Midian for a time. But it's at this time that we see a little bit about Moses' faith, and then God goes dark on Moses again, we're going to see. We're going to see that Moses is going to, what he's praised for in this by faith is we're going to see that Moses is praised for constantly making spiritual transactions, trading temporary earthly things for eternal and heavenly riches. Number one, Moses traded power and position for mistreatment. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. It says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So here we got Moses. He's a prince of Egypt. He's Pharaoh's uh, own daughter. He's wealthy. He's powerful. Uh, he's, got the mo he's got the name. He's got the position. He's got the title. He's got the money. He's got everything you could possibly want for your child. And Moses is about to give that up. And the reason is, is because Moses comes to a place where God lays something on his heart. We're going to see that uh, in just a little bit. God is going to lay it on his heart to concern himself with the people of Israel. God never wants his children to be consumed with the world, not even Moses. And he's using Moses as an example today, but God doesn't want any of us to be consumed with the things of this world, to live for this kingdom. In fact, First uh, John 2, 15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. This is a command to all Christians. Like Moses, we're not to love the world. Now, what's, what's the world? We're talking about planet Earth here. What, what is the world? The world is an ideological system. It's a program. It's, it's, a, it's a set of values and priorities for life. It's a set of moral principles, but all of it not based on God. Morality not based on God. Purpose not based on God. An understanding of human origin not based on God. That's the world. It's a system of thoughts, beliefs, ideologies, desires that are contrary to God himself. And so John warns us, do not love the world. Don't look at the world and, and see lost people in the fact that they don't have to come to church on Sunday and you, you envy their life somehow. Do not envy people whose end place is hell. Do not envy the people on the wide road who right now are enjoying a free float through life and they're enjoying the wide path. 
the Bible says it's the wide path that leads to destruction. So the Bible warns us, do not envy the world. Don't envy what the world has. Don't love the, thing, the world nor the things in the world. John continues. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from this world. And so here, John gives us a little better understanding of what the world is. These are not unfamiliar terms to you. You've heard these things. The lust of the, lust of the flesh, a desire to just gratify the body, just to, to live by biological instinct like our dog does. I'm hungry, so I'm gonna eat. I'm tired, so I'm gonna sleep. Uh, you know, I'm interested in some intimacy with some other dog I met, and you know, so I'm gonna, I'm just living by biological instinct alone. That's the lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes is when we get greedy. It's when we look around and we just enjoy collecting things. Our goal in buying things and making more money in life is just to collect and amass things for ourselves so that we can look at it and say, boy, look what I possess. That's the lust of the eyes. And the pride of life is simply that you want to use all of this to impress your neighbors. You're, you're overly concerned with what people think about you. You get easily offended because how dare you impugn the name of someone so important as myself? And so we get easily offended and hurt and we, are, we, we live our life and make decisions based upon how it's going to affect how people look at me. That's the pride of life. And, the, and the, John says, these three things, if these are the three things that are driving your decisions in life, that you're gonna gratify the body, that you're going to collect things for yourself and you're gonna worry about curating your reputation online or in person. He says, that's what the world does. They're just living for this temporary earthly kingdom. And John says, if that is your goal in life, he says, no matter how many times you come to church, he says, the love of the Father is still not in you. Because when the love of the Father is in us, he makes us like the Father. That's what it means to be converted. It means to be changed. Again, the first thing God changes is our inner desires and what we want from life. The sin I used to love, I hate. The holiness I used to hate, I now love. That's what repentance is. It's a changing of the mind. I see life differently now. Well, lives of faith see the emptiness of the world. John goes on to say the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so the reason we as Christians don't live for the world because we look at these things and we know it's not gonna be here forever. The clothes that I have, they're gonna wear out. Some moth is gonna lay eggs and its larvae are gonna eat holes in these clothes someday. Or I'm gonna spill something on this jacket. Anytime you wear a light jacket, you know you're gonna spill something. Do not eat Italian when you wear light clothing. It's gonna get ruined. I'm gonna throw it away someday. My car, someday the transmission's gonna get shot or the engine's gonna get blown, I'm gonna get rid of it. Even this beautiful church building, is this gonna be here forever? You ever go to Europe and see some of these destroyed buildings and churches and temples and things? It, it all disappears one day. And so we don't put our hope and dreams in, in just stuff and things that disappear. The world is passing away. I don't know if you see that or not. The world is passing away. Things break down, including my body. I'm not gonna live for these things. Well, Moses, he understood this and he relinquished a beautiful uh, earthly life, a life that many of us would covet to have. All the prestige, he could gratify the lust of the flesh, the eyes and the pride of life. Moses had all of those things that belong to this world. And yet he's going to give it all up. Hebrews 11.25 said uh, that he gave this up and it referred to these things, Moses' way of life, of the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The Bible in Hebrews 11.25 refers to this as the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
the fleeting pleasure. For Moses to continue in that lifestyle would mean that he'd have to retain his Egyptian name, which is attached to an Egyptian god. For Moses to stay in that lifestyle, he'd have to be okay with the rampant immorality that was taking place there. He would have to be okay with persecuting an entire nation of people. And so it would be sinful for him to maintain that lifestyle. And he gave it up even though it was pleasures. Remember, notice the Bible called sin pleasurable. It's not that sin is not pleasurable. Does it feel good initially to sin? It does, doesn't it? There's nobody last night who binge ate Brussels sprouts or asparagus, didn't you? You're laughing because you didn't do that. You maybe ate a little too much of something else. No, sin sin is pleasurable. I mean, if brisket tasted like asparagus, none of us would get fat. You know, we wouldn't be eating that. We'd be eating the other stuff. You know, if every time you slept in, you woke up, you're supposed to go to work, and instead you hit the snooze button, but every time you do, you wake up with a headache, you wouldn't hit the snooze button anymore, would you? And then your life would no longer be by faith. It would be cause and effect. I do this because it benefits me. And God is going to have us live by faith. So sin, it is pleasurable for a moment, but the Bible calls them the fleeting pleasures of sin. It won't stay fun for a long time. That sin will take from us, and we won't enjoy it so much. It's a fleeting pleasure. But the reason we do this a lot of times is because there's a a baseline understanding in our body, in our life, that we think that if something's pleasurable, it must be good for me. It's because we believe in our heart of hearts that God's ultimate goal for us is to be comfortable. Do you believe that? You shake your head now, but we, we we say we don't believe that, but a lot of times we live like that. If there is comfort to be had, God wants me to have it. If there's a bigger house that I can possibly squeeze out in, you know, a bigger mortgage and a bigger house, then obviously that's God's intention for my life. If I can possibly buy a new car instead of driving this older one, that must be God's intention for my life. If I could eat more ice cream than less, that must be God's intention for my life. And so we start to believe the lie that's been perpetrated all throughout man, that if it feels good, we should do it. I mean, there was even songs in the 60s by the... What is it, like the electric prunes or something? If it feels good, do it. And that was the song. That's an actual song. If it feels good, do it. Because that is the base lie of the human flesh, that if something is pleasurable, obviously it's God's intention for me to have that. And anybody who tells you to deny your flesh needs to be opposed. I grew up in a couple of acreages growing up as a kid. My dad was one of these guys, kind of guys who could do anything. You ever have one? A lot of you guys have one of those dads. He's kind of... Uh, rough, tough, rugged. I mean, he, he was a builder. He could build houses. He, uh, he raised hogs. He worked on cars. And so there was always about three or four cars on our acreage on jack stands, halfway through projects and things like that. And so it wasn't uncommon to see like, put in like little trays with like oil or antifreeze in there. Now, the problem with that is, my dad warned me, he was very careful not to leave antifreeze laying around. Why? because we got dogs or cats or things like that. We always had animals because that's, you receive everybody's cast-offs. They dump them off in the country and they're in your house and now you got to name them. And so we always had dogs around our house and antifreeze, dogs are in particular, they're attracted to antifreeze. There's a uh, component in there called ethylene glycol and it smells sweet. And when they begin to drink it, it, it tastes good to the dog. And he will lap up a whole bowl of this antifreeze like eating a whole half gallon of moose tracks. You know, this dog is just tearing this up. Problem is, he doesn't know that it feels good now. There's a fleeting pleasure to this sin, drinking what you're not supposed to. But in a couple of days, you're going to die of kidney failure. 
And that's what sin is to us. It, it's, it's got ethylene glycol to the human. It smells good, it feels good, it appeals to the senses, like even the garden looking at that fruit, and it's appealing to the eyes, and it's desired to make one wise. And so she drank the antifreeze. And we do the same thing with sin, don't we? we? We think that if it's pleasurable, it must be good for me. Why should I deny my flesh? Because there's a lot of antifreeze out in this world and God wants to save us from it. And so Moses, he gives up these things that are called the fleeting pleasures of sin. Even when you do give in to sin and you, you live for it, the things that make you feel good, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and pride of life, when you give in to these things, is it as appealing on day 20 as it was day one? It was not. Remember the first time you dated a girl and you held her hand, what that felt like? It was electrifying. You thought it was the best thing in the world. It was exciting. Uh, pretty soon that gets boring though, doesn't it? That's why you see kids when they're first dating, they start doing the finger circus. You ever see that? And they're just playing with each other's hands. They're just doing crazy stuff. It's not as exciting anymore. You gotta ramp it up. And it's meant to proceed somewhere. It's the law of diminishing returns. The thing that you're doing now in the flesh is not going to satisfy you in the same way down the road. Same thing with drugs or alcohol. You start with something light, but pretty soon you have to keep taking more and something harder before, you know, to get that same hit, that same high. It's a law of diminishing returns. Ecclesiastes 5, 10, Solomon was talking, money can even be that way. That, that lust of the eyes, that desire to get money, to acquire things, he says, that doesn't even last. It's a fleeting pleasure. So at the end of his life, Solomon is an old man. He's talking to all of us young people. And it says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. It's empty. He says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? In other words, you collect all this stuff for yourself, and all you can do is pull it out of the closet once in a while and go, wow, I can't believe I have this. And then you put it away. And that's the value of it. He says, even when you make income, he says, and your income increases, he says, when your goods increase, what else happens? They increase who eat them. In the Hebrew, that means teenagers. When you're younger, they don't eat so much. You don't make so much, but they don't eat so much. You get a little bit older, and they start eating more, don't they? My son, I love him, but when we were in high school, uh, he would have friends over, and we would have to send him out because we couldn't afford to feed these, him and his friends because they'd come over, and they would eat food like it was a competitive sport, and Amber's just slaving away in the kitchen. Eventually, I have to pull her out and say, babe, they're never going to stop. You need to let this go. We take my son off to high school, uh, from high school to college, and uh, our food bill went down by one half. One-fifth of our family left. Half of our food bill went down. I took my wife to Munich that summer. <laughs> Who's joking? I actually did. We're like, babe, we're going to celebrate this. We, we got money to spend now. But that's what it is. When goods increase, does your expenses and your responsibilities tend to increase with it? Yeah, because when you get a raise, what's your first thought? Honey, with this new raise, we would like to honor God with the first fruits of our income. Not typically. Uh, honey, our, our income has increased. Let's use that to bless those around us and to live generously. No, our first thought is, hey, baby, we can finally afford that house down the road. <laughs> we can finally buy a new car. I can get a whole new wardrobe. We can go to Tahiti this summer. That's our first thought because our, we're intrinsically drawn by the flesh to give our flesh as much as our income can afford. But the Bible says when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And so pretty soon, we're in just as much credit card debt as we were, even though we make more money. Because we think the purpose of our life is just to invest in our life here into this earthly kingdom. Moses wouldn't live that way. Hebrews eleven twenty five 25 says, he chose rather to be mistreated 
with the people of God. He gave all this life up. And understand what Moses gave up. Age zero to 40, Moses lived the life of a literal prince. He gives that up. He goes out to Midian. And then again, we have another 40 years of darkness. We don't hear anything about his life. So for zero to age 40, we, hear, we don't hear much about his princely life. Age 40, he flees into Midian. Remember that in South, or, uh, is it Southwest, Northwest, whatever. It's in Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia. And he flees there and he doesn't live the princely life, but he lives a comfortable life, doesn't he? Kind of like you and I live. Most of you don't live like princes and that's okay. But do you live a comfortable life? Most of you do. You're not suffering for food. I mean, I'm looking around. We're not starving here, most of us. We got clothes on us. Most of you didn't wear the same clothes all week. You changed every day. You could shower. You got a nice home. You got, you're living a comfortable life. That was Moses' life in Midian. He goes and he becomes a herdsman. He gets a wife. He settles down. He has kids. He goes to concerts and recitals. He has birthday parties. Okay? That, that was his life in Midian. It was a comfortable, normal, everyday life. But you notice God doesn't write anything about that life either. There's nothing about living the, the pampered life as an Egyptian that interested God. There's nothing about living just an easy, everyday, comfortable life that interested God. When do we read most of the material that we have on Moses? It's after the burning bush, isn't it? And I don't care what you watch on TV or the cartoons, Moses was not a young man at that point. God speaks to him at the burning bush at age 80. 80! God hadn't said much about his life up to that point because just living a good earthly life has very little interest to God. But at age 80, God calls him out, and we know he's old too because when he was young, the Bible actually says that Moses was excellent in speech when he was a young man. Now that he's 80, what does Moses say to God? I can't lead these people because I am slow of speech. He's an old guy now. He doesn't have the strength that he had when he was a young boy. That's why Moses, it's not that Moses was always a bad speaker. It's that he's aged now. What can you do with me? I'm an old man. And so God, not so interested in all the life that he lived before, he's interested when Moses started living by faith and Moses chose to give up the good life, to give up the comfortable life and to live for the Lord and to suffer, the Bible says, mistreatment. This word mistreatment doesn't mean Moses was just going back to live a hard life, to work hard with his brothers and sisters as a slave. Mistreatment is a word that means somebody is intentionally wounding you. They're intentionally hurting you. There are whips to the back, insults spit to the face, heavy burdens being put upon you that are just unbearable, such that the rest of Israel was groaning. Exodus 2.23 says the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And when Moses lived by faith, he willingly exchanged his princely life, his comfortable life, he gave it all up to intentionally suffer mistreatment at the hands of the Egyptians. And God says he did this by faith. He was trading the temporary life for something eternal. And this is when God perks up and gets excited about Moses' life. Have you noticed here that God isn't too concerned that we live a really good life or that we live a comfortable life or that we achieve all of our earthly life goals and financial dreams? When God perks up and gets excited about our life is when we begin to live for the kingdom to come. And that's when we start hearing about Moses' life. Number two, we're gonna see here that Moses traded immediate wealth for future wealth. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth and than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to 
the reward. I want you to understand that Moses ruled during a time in Egypt uh, in what is called the New Kingdom. It was during the 18th and 19th dynasties. It was considered the golden age of being an Egyptian. They were making tons of money off of military campaigns. Uh, Ramesses II and others uh, had military campaigns and brought in a lot of money. They had gold for coming in from mines in Nubia, present-day Sudan. They had uh, trade wealth. They were centered, look, at, look where Egypt is. They're at the center of all trade back then. Uh, you had Mediterranean trade coming through there, African trade coming through there, and trade from Asia coming through there. So they were getting all this money from that. They, they had uh, agricultural wealth from the Nile. When other places would suffer starvation, Egypt had enough to feed the entire world. And so Moses was in Egypt at its in its glory days, its heyday. And that's when he chose to give all that up. The treasures in Egypt that Hebrews 11 described were the greatest in the world, and yet verse 26 says that Moses exchanged the treasures of Egypt for a better reward. What was it? The reproach of Christ. How is that a better reward? You know what a reproach is, right? A reproach is when people revile you. They're mocking you. They're scorning you. They're saying bad things about you. They're lying about you. Will people do that? It's happened to you. It can even happen in churches at times. God forbid, but it does. And yet Moses gave up this comfortable, good life here because he thought there was something better and it was the reproach of Jesus Christ to suffer in the way that Christ suffered. Moses says it's worth it to give up all the comfortable life, to give up the princely life, to suffer the reproach of Jesus. Why? Matthew 5.10, once again, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, right? For what is theirs? It's the kingdom of God. They get the kingdom of God. Moses, you have to understand that Moses, in his exchange of the earth's goods for something eternal, for the riches of Egypt, for the reproach of Christ, the Bible says that uh, he was exchanging this for a greater wealth, for he was living for a better kingdom. And let's face it, every one of us choose a kingdom, don't we? Every decision that we make in life, even the little decisions that we make day by day, we're either advancing an earthly kingdom or heavenly kingdom. Now, we have to advance our earthly life a little bit, right? You still need to eat. Your kids get crooked teeth just like mine did, and you gotta put braces on them. Uh, we have to some, somewhat live within this world. The Bible says we're in the world, but not of the world. It means we're here and we pay our bills, but all my goals and dreams in life aren't here. And so we all choose a kingdom. We either choose to live our life almost entirely for an earthly kingdom, advancing our wealth and our prosperity, our uh, admiration from others and indulging the flesh. That's the world's kingdom. Or we do like Moses and we make a great exchange and we trade that in for wealth that cannot disappear. We trade that for a future kingdom. We live for the kingdom of God. You know, if a secular historian were to look at Moses' life, they'd look at him and say, look what he gave up and look what he got in return. What a fool. I'd like to bring to your mind the words of Jim Elliott, a famous missionary who died giving his life for the Aka Indians, who famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That man is no fool. You can't keep this. The Bible called him the fleeting pleasures of sin. It's temporary wealth. It's passing away. You're not a fool for giving up on these things for heavenly wealth to live for a kingdom that is to come. Do you think Moses ever regretted giving all that up and, live in, and choosing to suffer mistreatment? Think Moses regretted that? 
Last time we saw Moses in the Bible, uh, Matthew 17, 3, Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, wasn't he? And who shows up on the mountain? Jesus just kind of comes up. He sort of peels back the curtains of heaven and reveals Moses and Elijah sitting there with a couple Arnold Palmers and, and sitting in a hammock. It's not actually in the Bible, Mike, unless you're reading The Message by Eugene Peterson or something. You know, it's fun to read, but take some liberties. Moses is living, uh, Moses is living the, the best life he possibly could. He would look back upon his sacrifices on earth and say, that was the best business decision I ever made, was to live for the kingdom to come and not just for these temporary riches here. Well, along these lines, Jesus tells us a story to, make the, to enable us to make the same decisions that Moses did. Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 16. If you want to turn there, you can. Keep your finger in Hebrews 11. In Luke 16, verse 1, we read here, it says, there was a rich man, that's in this story, that's God, who had a manager, that's you and I, who are as believers, who are, we, we're responsible for the wealth of God. And charges were brought to him that the man was wasting his possessions. So in this story, you have a guy who owns a lot of stuff, and there's a guy who is here to manage it. In other words, he is here primarily to use the manager's resources to enrich uh, the owner. But this manager took what the owner gave in, under his control and he wasted it on himself. You know, the brother's flying first class everywhere. He's buying himself new suits on the boss's dime. He's, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, he's eating lobster every night. He's being wasteful of the master's possessions. He feels like this money that's within his power, if it's within his power to control this money, obviously the manager would want him to be happy or the boss wants him to be happy. So use all this money for yourself. And do you see where Jesus is already going with this? The money that we have, who does it belong to? God, do you really believe that? That every penny you make is there because God gave you breath to breathe, God gave your body strength, God gave your body life, and that whatever we have belongs to him? Psalm 24, one, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, and everyone that dwells on it, we all belong to God. The Bible tells us later, you've been bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body, which is the Lord's. And so every penny that we have, it belongs to God anyway. So we are here to manage it. Yes, God wants you to use your money to take care of your family, get those kids' crooked teeth straight, you know, get food, even enjoy it from time to time, go out and have yourself a pizza and a Dr. Pepper. Enjoy those things, but don't live for those things. Don't live for it wastefully, just thinking, well, my boss just wants me to be happy, and so that's how I'm gonna use all my money. Well, the story goes on. <clears throat> it says in verse two, he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So what the boss said here is, your time is limited, pal. There's gonna come a time you're not gonna have this money available to you, and I'm gonna require an accounting of you. Is God gonna do that in our life? That God's gonna look at how we spent our time, our efforts, and our money, and there's gonna be an accounting given? Read about it, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Every man, every Christian will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Not for our sins, it's the Bema seat, it's the reward seat. It's to see how we use the resources that God entrusted to us, and there will be an accounting. Well, this manager says to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking my management away from me? I'm not always gonna have this money available to me to use. He says, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from this management, people may receive me into their houses. He's gonna change how he lives today 
because he knows there's an accounting that's coming up very soon. And here's what he does. Verse five. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he says to the first, how much do you owe my master? He says, 100 measures of oil. He says to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. He says to another, how much do you owe? He says, 100 measures of wheat. He says to him, take your bill and write 80. What's he doing? While he still has the master's money within his power, just before the accounting, he's deciding not to waste the money on himself. He's making friends on the outside. He's making friends that are going to go beyond this job. Yes, he's a crook, but he's a smart crook. In fact, Jesus even praises him for this. In verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He says, for the sons of this world, who's that? It's the world. It's lost people. The sons of this world are more shrewd. They're wiser in their dealing in their own generation than the sons of light. Who's that? That's you and I. He says, and here's the moral of the story. Jesus kind of Aesop fable. He kind of condenses the point of this story to this. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Is, is wealth sinful? It's not. When Jesus calls it unrighteous wealth, he just means that wealth in itself is not a means to an end. There's nothing particularly holy about wealth. It can be used for bad. It can be used for good. He's saying, use this unrighteous wealth so that when it fails... Does money fail? Money always fails. <clears throat> when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Jesus wants us to learn a lesson from this dishonest manager. Stop wasting money, just completely pampering yourself. Use that money for eternal things because there's going to be an accounting. What have you done with the time I gave you? What have you done with the money I entrusted to you? What have you done with the energies and efforts I've given you? What have you done with the relationships that I have put into your life? How have you managed them? There will be an accounting. And so he tells us to use unrighteous wealth. There's nothing particularly holy about wealth, but use it today while it still has value because eventually that money's gonna fail. All the money that we have in our pockets, the American dollar, it's monopoly money. And that's not a political statement. It's, that's a, it's a truthful statement. Right now, I want you to look at the US dollar and I want you to think this is monopoly money. When you play monopoly, anybody still play monopoly? A few of you? I'm sorry. Uh, there are better games out there. But we've all played Monopoly, so we get it. You play Monopoly while you're playing. How important is that money to you? Depends on who you're playing with. You know, you get some of these guys. I mean, it's, it's their world. As soon as they play Monopoly, it's like their manhood rises and falls on their ability to destroy you with Boardwalk and Park plays. You played with them too, haven't you? Uh, during that game, it's like their whole world is lying on this and that money becomes really important and they become bank watchers. Did you give me enough? Did you take some out of there? You know, and that money is everything to them. It, it's their means to an end to win this game. But when the Monopoly game ends, in other words, when somebody finally flips the table in anger, when that Monopoly game ends, how valuable is that money? Can you go down to Burger King and buy yourself a Whopper meal with that money? You go ahead and try that and report back, Chris. Tell me how that went for you. You can't do it, can you? Monopoly money has value only while you're playing the game. And when you put that game away, that money has no more value anymore. This is what God is communicating to us. Right now, the U.S. dollar has value. You can use it to buy a Whopper if you want. You can buy Monopoly if you want. Um, you can use it to get, send your kids to college. That's a good thing. You can use it to uh, pay your mortgage. That's a good thing. But he says, don't forget that your money has a higher purpose than just maintaining your life. 
that your money has a purpose beyond this. He says, use that money to make friends on the other side. In other words, take that money and use it for something of eternal significance. Exchange it for something better than just another new suit, one of 10 that you have in your closet. Use that money, uh, send a kid on a mission trip. Use that money, maybe send a kid to camp. Use that money, maybe, you know, increase your giving to the Lord. Maybe it's something that you just haven't done and it's not been a habit of yours. We don't tithe, we don't offer, we don't, we don't give. Make that a habit. That's how you can exchange it. You know, paying the light bills is still given to the Lord. It's still important. If we don't pay the light bills, you're not gonna be able to see anything and you're gonna go on and find another church and the ministry of this church is gonna disappear. But what God wants us to do is he wants us to take what money that he's entrusted to us, use a portion for yourself, but intentionally invest what you can into the Lord's work and make friends on the, for the other side. Don't, don't just get to the end of your life and say, wow, I literally spent every penny that I made for myself. Moses didn't do this. He, the Bible says he traded away the riches of Egypt. He learned this lesson and he didn't live for unrighteous wealth. And so for us, we need to learn from Moses that life is just a great exchange. God puts us like Adam and Eve in the middle of the garden. There's a tree in the garden, and we can either be attracted to that tree or we can subdue the earth and fill it like God commanded. We can obey him or we can indulge the flesh. We can live for this kingdom or we can live for a kingdom that's to come. And every day, I don't want you to think that living a life of faith is just making these great decisions. Most of you are never gonna stand before Pharaoh. Most of you. Most of you aren't gonna do any of these amazing, great things, but can you live a life of faith? Every day through these little microtransactions, every day we make these little microtransactions into one deposit or another into the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of heaven. I can choose to sleep in and invest in my earthly kingdom and I feel a little better when I go to work or I can get up 15 minutes earlier and spend a little time in the word and pray and invest in my heavenly kingdom. I can go to work and have lunch. I can open up my sack lunch and we can complain about our spouses to one another, you know, and just kind of have a fun lunch there. Or I can invest into a heavenly kingdom and use that relationship God has put into my life and I can share the gospel over lunch or try to bridge that conversation to the gospel. See, every life is a decision to invest in one kingdom or the other. My question is, it's not that you can't invest in your earthly kingdom, but let that not be your only investment. Make sure what you're investing in, your time, efforts, and energy, money, it, that you're putting something into eternity. So the Bible says that Moses was looking forward to his reward. That means his reward wasn't here on earth. Moses wasn't living for today. And if you look at his life, it's pretty obvious. Gave up being a prince, gave up being a comfortable herdsman, went back to be a slave to suffer mistreatment because he was looking for a reward to come. Much like a young man named William Borden, you maybe have heard this story before. It's a very famous story and for a good reason. You ever, when I was a kid, my mom used to always make pies and stuff, and for whatever reason, everything she ever made required the use of sweetened condensed milk. Anybody? I would risk cutting my tongue licking out a can of that. Uh, <clears throat> I love Mr. Borden for that reason. Uh, in 1856, he patented the process of making condensed milk and made a whole lot of money doing it. When he did that, he also did a number of other things. He's the reason that we delivered milk so many years in glass bottles to your home. That, thank Mr. Borden for that. Uh, he eventually bought over 200 dairy farms and started the world's first dairy empire. And so this guy had this, just millions of dollars coming in through these patents and these dairy farms 
uh, through this dairy industry. And so he raised up his son. His son turned 16. He's got all this money. He sends his son out to see the world. Hey, son, you're going to be milking cows the rest of your life. Go out and see the world first. And so he does. He sends him through Europe and through the Middle East and into Asia. And it changed his perspective. And God just opened his eyes. He comes back to school. By the way, his daddy sends him to Yale and Princeton. But he comes back to Yale, and at Yale, uh, he writes in his Bible a couple of words. He's, he's very known for saying this. The first words he wrote in the back of his Bible were no reserves. He comes back from overseas. He's going to come back to college, and he's going to live his life without reserves to God. God, there's nothing in my life that you can't have. My life is, a, is, is just completely open-handed to you. No reserves. And he did. He, when he went back to college, he started a a Bible study that had hundreds of people coming to it. He started a prayer group that upon graduation had 1,000 of the 1,300 Yale students attending. That's a pretty successful prayer group. During his weekends, he was often out in the inner cities. He actually started, uh, he started an inner city mission. What was it called? It was called the, uh, the Yale Hope Mission. Is that what you did in college? Did you start prayer groups and Bible studies and a mission to reach drunks, you know, to get their life back to the Lord? You were puking with your buddies and hitting each other with frat paddles. You weren't doing anything holy. Most of us weren't. But, but Borden, who writes no reserves in his Bible, says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to do something significant with my life. And it's not just to make money and get a, get a degree and earn cash. Well, at Yale, he has, there's a missions conference. There's a, fam, a fellow named Samuel Zwimmer. And he preaches this missions conference, and he just gives this impassioned plea. He says, there are people in northern China, Muslims, that nobody's reaching. They're an unreached, unengaged, unreached people group. He says, maybe God has one of you that wants to go there. And he, that, that began to sit on William Borden's heart. And he opens the back of his Bible up again, and he writes these words, no retreats. He's about to graduate, but he's not going to retreat from his decision on living his life unreservedly for the Lord. No retreats. I'm not going to walk back on my decision to follow God wholeheartedly. And when he graduated, his buddies went off to get very lucrative jobs. He decided he's going to be one of those guys who's going to go to North China and reach out to those Muslims. So the first thing he does is he makes a decision. I'm going to go to Egypt, and I'm going to study Arabic, and I'm going to go reach those Muslims in northern China. And so he goes to prepare for this. He gets over to Egypt and he starts to study Arabic. But do you know he, William Borden never made it to China? While he was studying Arabic, he contracted spinal meningitis and he died. I mean, what a waste. Just moments before, newspaper articles were writing about him. Young millionaire renounces the world to be a missionary. He goes to be a missionary, and he doesn't even make it to his mission field. He doesn't make it out of language school, and he dies. And many would look at his life and shake their head and say, what a complete waste. What did God do with it, man? And we would look at his life and say, what a waste. But it's interesting, when they retrieved his belongings from Egypt, they brought it back home, and they looked in his Bible. He had inscribed two more words in the back of his Bible. And it said, no regrets. No regrets. May God help us to live a life like that. No reserves no retreats, and no regrets. You know, just before Jesus went, took his disciples up to the Mount of Transfiguration, he gave us these words, and we'll finish. 
Matthew 16, 25 says, whoever would save his life will lose it. To save your life means you're just protecting your earthly kingdom. You're investing in your earthly kingdom. You're protecting it. You're protecting your reputation. You're protecting your money. You're protecting your possessions, your collections. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, it means you're willing to give up earthly things for a heavenly goal. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? By faith, Moses exchanged and traded out this life for the life to come. That is what God says is a life of faith. That is the very thing that God wants us to duplicate. And so even today as we read through this, Moses is still preaching and speaking from the pages of Scripture, and he's inviting us to do the same thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that as we study the life of Moses, God, it's, at times it's intimidating. We read these lives of faith and we realize, Lord, we had enough faith to trust Jesus to save us from hell. But there's a lot of ways that we trust Jesus to save us from the day-to-day. We don't want to trust Jesus to pay the bills. We don't want to trust Jesus to heal us. We don't want to trust Jesus to preserve our relationships when we share the gospel. It's hard to live by faith. God, I pray that we wouldn't just be a people who lives by faith one moment to trust Jesus for eternity, but then we live the rest of our life trusting ourselves. God, may we, like Moses, exchange portions of this earthly life, God, and make an investment and a deposit into a heavenly kingdom, one that is to come. We ask this in Christ's name. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.